Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about palliative care with Dr. Andrew Putnam. Dr. Putnam is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So, Andrew, let's start off with a definition. What exactly is palliative care? Well, palliative care, I guess if the way to think about it, since this is about, uh, this is cancer talks, is to think about it for a patient with cancer. A patient with cancer has an oncologist, and the oncologist fights the cancer. Now, some of the things that the oncologist will do will make the patient feel awful. Chemotherapy can do that. However, they're fighting the cancer. I'm the mirror image of that. Palliative care, we don't do anything about the cancer, but we fight nausea, constipation, pain. We try and make the patient feel better. So palliative care is pain and symptom management. Also what we do is we have, we help, I guess, with lots of conversations that can be very challenging to have, both with patients and families, about how things are going and mainly how the patient wants them to go. Um, and then the last part is I find myself doing lots of uh, interpreting of medical English from, you know, CAT scan reports and things like that where the patient looks and says, I've got no clue what this says. Um, so we do a lot of communication as well as that. So that really makes it sound like you're part of the mm. medical team, that you're, you're fighting the symptoms so that the doctors can deliver the therapy better, that you're helping the patient understand the results if their primary team hasn't communicated those well enough. But for a lot of people, when they hear palliative care, um, no offense or anything, uh, Andrew, they're thinking death panels. <laughs> like, where, where does that that imagery come in? Well, the joke among many palliative care docs is that when we go up into the floors of the hospital, we should wear a black hood and carry a scythe, because that certainly is how some people feel about us. Um, I think the, the actual name of my subspecialty is hospice and palliative medicine. And so people hear hospice, and everyone knows what hospice is, and you're supposed to have less than six months to live, and it's end of life, and this is where people go to die. So that will often get mixed up with palliative care. Now, of palliative care, the whole range of it, probably about 20% of it is actually hospice, end of life stuff. But the other 80%, the vast majority of my patients are actively getting chemotherapy, they're getting surgery, they're getting radiation, and I'm helping them get on with their treatments. So the way we think about it is we're an extra layer of care, an extra layer of support for the patient and the family as they're going through the journey that is cancer. So when when are you actually called into the whole process? I mean, 
are you are you there at the minute of diagnosis? Are you there when treatment starts, or or is this something that it really is kind of like when things are not looking so good? That's when people call your team. Well, that can it varies a great deal. Obviously, um, the World Health Organization back in 1990, their statement was that when someone gets their oncologist, they should get a palliative care doctor at the same time. Now, obviously, excuse me, that's going to be far too expensive for the medical system to support. So where we get called is when the oncologist or because we see um, lung disease, heart disease, whenever the primary team feels that they want us to come in and help. Sometimes that can be at the very beginning. I certainly have been called by oncologists the first time they see a patient saying, I want to give this person chemotherapy, but they're in a lot of pain or having severe nausea, and we want to get them more comfortable. Can you come and see them now? For patients like that, we're involved at the same time as the oncologist gets involved. Other times, it's we get called, someone's in the hospital, and they are actively dying. And we may get called in to help in the very last moments of life. Um, But most of the time, we get called in, obviously, in the middle of those two, when um, the oncologist or the cardiologist or the pulmonologist has been treating symptoms and has reached a point where they say, it looks a little bit more challenging than I'm able to do. Let me call in an expert in pain and symptom management. So how does um, many hospitals have a a pain team, right? Often uh, a team of anesthesiologists uh, who deal in pain management. But it seems to me from your description that palliative care is more than pain management. It's, It's nausea management and constipation management and and I can't sleep management, and all of that. Is that right? Yeah, it's very true. The The list is something like 41 symptoms that cancer patients get, and one of them is hiccups, and hiccups are not very horrible most of the time. I had one patient who'd been hiccuping for five months straight. He oh hadn't been able to stop. Gosh. And so they asked me to come and help with that. Um, But as you said, poor sleep, I can't poop, I can't pee, I'm pooping too much, I'm peeing too much. Um, All of these things, nausea, vomiting, um, poor sleep, um, lack of energy, I'm too tired, all of these things can really um, get in the way of a patient's quality of life while they're on chemo, after chemo, before chemo. So... Let's suppose you're called in to to help with all of these 41 symptoms. How how do you do that? I mean, how do you assess a patient, figure out what it is uh, that is their main issue? Because many of these patients, I would assume, have many issues. And then how do you help to kind of deal with all of that? Well, hopefully they don't have all 41 symptoms at once. But... um, Going in and seeing a patient and or a patient and a family, um, it's new and different every time. And so it involves the main part is keeping your ears open, keeping your eyes open, and trying to figure out what's important to this patient and this family. Sometimes we're called for one thing. Um, for example, we may get called for pain. Please come and help with this patient's pain. And that's 
relatively easy to understand. People, you know, on narcotics are medications that a lot of people aren't comfortable with, especially at higher doses. But we may get in and start talking to the patient, and what's actually bothering them even more than their pain is their anxiety. And their anxiety, there's various studies about this, and anxiety makes pain worse. So if, you treat, if you're treating pain but not the anxiety, you may not make any progress with the pain. So sometimes we get called in for one thing and we find out that it's something else that's actually the bigger problem. Sometimes we go in and, yes, there's five, six, seven, eight symptoms and um, not really understanding what's going on and just all sorts of things, in which case a lot of it is the main part, I guess, is listening to the patient, listening to the family, asking questions that are open-ended that allow them to explain their feelings, their understanding of what's going on, and then going from there as to what we can do to help. Usually we can't help with everything in the first visit, but it's, mo- the, well, as I tell medical students, the main thing that I want to have happen when I leave that room is that the next time I show up, I want the patient to smile, to go, okay, here's someone who's on my side, here's someone who's going to help me. And so it may be that we just do the pain and the constipation that first day, and then the next day we're going to deal with the anxiety and, and other things. Um, but we can, only, you know, we can only do so much at, at one time without you know, getting the patient lost in the process. Yeah. How much of what you do <clears throat> is kind of psychosocial support versus pharmacal, pharmacologic therapies? Well, when you ask that question, I guess the main part of the answer is that palliative care is not just the physician. Um, my team, our team, um, and by definition, a palliative care team has physicians, nurses, we have a physician's assistant also, a social worker, and chaplain. And then you can have other groups as well, but at least it's those uh, four Disciplines And so the, de- depending on the problems that the patient is having, um, different aspects of the different, um, different aspects of the different parts of the team will be more important. So if what's happening is well, I had a patient who said, they're comfortable, but I can't understand why God is doing this to me. I've been a good Catholic all my life. I've gone to church. And here's God punishing me. Now, I can talk a little bit about that, but getting my chaplain involved helps take that discussion to a whole new level that the patient and the chaplain can, can discuss. Other times it can be um, the patient's having some troubles, but the main concern is what's going to happen to my wife? She doesn't drive. I've always done all the bills. There's no one at home to take care of her. Um, what are we going to do? And again, my social worker is so much better at doing, taking care of those things than I do. Um, I can do the pharmacology. I can do some uh, social uh, support. Our nurses, again, are, they come at problems that patients have from a totally different training, a totally different way of looking at things, and they see things that I miss, and I see things that they miss. So as a, as a team... Of, as a team, 
working with patients and families, we get far more done than we would if we were just working individually. The other piece that you mentioned, and I want to bring in uh, just briefly, is that you mentioned the family. How much is your treatment directed solely at the patient, and how much of it is really encompassing the patient-family unit? Well, as I think about palliative medicine, I, and I come from a background of family medicine. That was my training before palliative. And there we don't just look at the person in the bed. We look at the family, the friends who are standing around the bed because the patient is suffering in one way. And, you know, the, the physical symptoms, the actual having the cancer, however, the family and the friends of people close to that patient are also suffering, often in very different ways. But, you know, the, the way of torturing someone is you don't hurt them. You hurt someone they love and make them listen. And that's likely to break someone down much faster than if you do something to that individual. Because we, we can stand things ourselves. We just can't stand things in the ones we love. So it's really important helping families navigate what's going on with a patient, talking with them, how is it affecting them? Because so much of American medicine doesn't include them. Mm-hmm. We just figure that, you know, they've got to keep the stiff upper lip and, and you know, move along taking care of the patient. But if the family can't do it, then the whole care, the whole care plan falls apart. So tell me in, in the one minute that we have before the break, I mean, is is all of your work really focused on adult patients, or does this affect kids, too? Uh, pedi- uh, palliative care very much is involved with children as well. There are now, I, it's somewhere around 95 training programs or fellowships for palliative care around the country, and something like seven of them are specifically for pediatric palliative care. And there is a requirement for some pediatric palliative care in all the training programs, whether they're adult or children-focused. Here at Yale, we are trying to um, start a pediatric palliative care program, um, and that is very important as well. We're going to pick up on the differences between adult and child uh, palliative care after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned for more information with my guest, Dr. Andrew Putnam. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the United States will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 of these diagnoses here in Connecticut. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from this disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo that enables targeted biopsies to be performed, as opposed to removing multiple cores from the prostate for examination, which may not be necessary. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. 
You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Andrew Putnam. We're talking about palliative care and the things that are new in palliative care. And I guess one of the things that might not be quite so new, but still reasonably new, is this whole idea of palliative care being for kids, too, because children do get cancer. And I can imagine that that is not only a punch to the gut to the kids, but also to their families. And when you talk about treating the patient and the family and their both their physical symptoms and their psychological symptoms, I can only imagine the challenges that palliative care has in that arena. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's um, I a large part of it is that we expect our older people to die. It's not easy to lose a parent or a grandparent, um, but at least when someone is 80 years old, 90 years old, you know, you can at least say, well, they had a good life, you know, they smoked, they did this, they did that. Um, you know, it, it's at least we can understand it, and usually families can find, have friends or other people who've had similar experiences. It is so different for the families who have a young child uh, who has cancer or some other life-limiting disease that's likely to end their life quickly. Um, most families won't know other people uh, who are having that experience, and so the amount of support that they need is huge, and the amount of support that's available um, is often not very large. And so pediatric palliative care is designed to Again, help with the pain and other symptoms that the children suffers. But a lot of what we do is talk with families about you know, what does this mean for them? What does this mean for their child? And you know, is chemotherapy the right way to go? If they're saying there isn't much more to do, we bring up the idea of hospice. And that's very hard to do with parents who obviously love their child and they're looking at their five-year-old, ten-year-old, two-year-old child who's going to die soon. And how to help them is a great challenge, even for those of us who do pediatric palliative care. Yeah, I can imagine even before it, it gets to the point of hospice, when you're talking about symptom management, watching your your child, you know, go through nausea and vomiting and hair loss and all of the things that many of us think about with uh, chemotherapy must be incredibly difficult. It's very difficult, not to mention the amount of time that the patient, the, the child, and the family now spend in the hospital. Um, I mean, it's, it's time spent out of their own life, time spent away from work, away from what's, you know, normal for them at a place that is, you know, it's about taking care of the child's cancer, but it's, it's not their normal life. It's very hard. Yeah. You know, Andrew, one of the things we, we often talk about palliative care with regards to patients with regards to their family. But when you talk about kids, and I, I just reflect back on my own experience, uh, you know, in residency doing pediatric surgery uh, and seeing some of these kids with cancer uh, that we were operating on, there is a huge amount that it affects their providers as well. Does the palliative care team have a role in terms of compassion fatigue and helping 
with coping of the care team? Um, a great deal, actually. We will get called in to talk with the uh, hospital care providers, I'm assuming you mean. Yeah. Um, the nurses, the doctors who are taking care of these patients. If we got called in oh, a month or two ago because there were a couple very difficult deaths for patients that the team really cared about, knew well, had yeah. been in the hospital a lot, and it happened quickly in a couple of cases. So we go and support there. Um, a child, of course, is always um, the need for support for caregivers because in a pediatric population, the child who dies is very out of the norm by definition. And so we, we do a lot of support for caregivers as well. Yeah, because I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, I feel for the patients and I especially feel for the families, but but as healthcare providers uh, working uh, with cancer patients every day, we, we get pretty attached to our patients and, and often uh, go through that same emotional turmoil. We do, and people expect that because this is our job that we will not be human. Our human element is, is sort of expected to you know, take a back seat and not be important. And we're doing a lot of teaching of medical students and residents these days about you can, you can try and lock all that up, but that's a sure way to burn out. Yeah. It's really important to acknowledge that we have feelings about our patients, acknowledge that we have a sense of loss, very different, obviously, from the families of the patient. But in our own way, we have a sense of loss that we have to acknowledge and deal with. Yeah. But... I want to spin uh, this conversation to the happy because uh, uh, I'm not really good with the sad mm. stories. Um, palliative care, there was a great uh, study uh, that came out in the New England Journal several years ago that actually talked about palliative care being um, increasing the quantity of life, not just the quality of life. We talk about palliative care in terms of symptom management. We can make you feel better. But we always think palliative care is still going to be, as you say, kind of like the Grim Reaper coming, knocking mm -hmm. at the door. This study actually showed that palliative care was associated with a lengthening of life. Talk about that. That seems unbelievable to people who haven't read the study. Well, it's it's a, a great study. It was uh, done with Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Temmel, uh, who was the lead author. It was published in the New England Journal in 2010 um, from the Massachusetts General Hospital. And I guess I should put in a plug. Uh, the senior author was Dr. Tom Lynch, who is my boss. So I hope he hears this. Um, but they they took people with metastatic lung cancer and some of them got palliative care consults automatically and some didn't. And the way the study went, they, as expected, they found that people's quality of life was better with palliative care. There was less depression. But they did find something that really nobody expected, which was the people who got palliative care consults early on lived longer. <clears throat> now we're talking a couple months longer out of, you know, a year or so. But it was a very significant uh, difference. There are various studies now that are trying to replicate that. But as I think about it, I think that people who are more comfortable are probably, you know, going to feel better and have a better chance of living longer. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a tremendous <clears throat> plug for, for palliative care and symptom management. 
So I think the other thing that's interesting, and I want to talk about symptom management, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about managing people's anxiety and uh, doing kind of, you know, social work interventions with the chaplain and uh, kind of uh, psychological uh, support. We talked a little bit about medicines that we can use to help with pain, to help with nausea, to help with constipation. What about alternative therapies? I mean, how much do you guys use herbs? I mean, and what what's going on in terms of the national forefront when you think about other other things being used uh, in that setting, things like medical marijuana? Talk a little bit about the complexities of, of your field and where it's going. Well, it's a great question. Um, I mean, as far as the complementary uh, therapies, Reiki and um, acupuncture, herbs, aromatherapy, uh, massage, all of these things have a place in helping people's quality of life improve. There's not a whole lot of data on them at this point, and that's a problem because when you work at a major cancer center, people want to see data. They want to see that things work. Um, and there hasn't been a whole lot of studies on, on many of these treatments yet. But many people swear by them, and they definitely help with certain numbers of patients. Um, the, the big, I guess you could say, national uh, uh, point of discussion right now is medical marijuana and the number of states, including Connecticut, that have uh, ratified it. And um, there are dispensaries that I think have opened now in Connecticut. And so but the same problem is there in that there hasn't been um, much research that has been done. There's some, um, but certainly not enough to make it clearly what areas, what symptoms it helps, how much it helps. Uh, and it would be great if these studies could be done. So even even more broadly, when we think about, you know, all of these these therapies, things like acupuncture, I think, you know, a lot of people uh, use acupuncture without the data. Are we on the forefront of doing these clinical trials, <laughs> looking at clinical trials, randomizing patients to music therapy versus not or or massage therapy versus not? I mean, a, a lot of these seem fairly innocuous um, and may potentially provide benefit. But are we are we on the forefront of getting hard data? Um, I'm not sure about that. I, I don't know the extent of clinical trials around the country for a lot of these therapies. Um, I think that there, I'm sure there are some that are going on, but um, it, that's going to take some time. There's not a lot of money out there for those types of trials. So, uh, you know, not the way there are for cancer drugs uh, and other therapies where you have companies that are willing to front up the money to, to make it happen. And there are a lot of patients who are willing to do them. Yeah. I guess the other issue, especially <clears throat> with uh, many of the, the complementary therapies, especially with herbs and so on, is that there is such a variation in terms of uh, quality and uh, because it's it's a non FDA regulated mm -hmm. environment that it makes it uh, difficult to do those kinds of of trials. So back to medical marijuana, mm -hmm. um, is, is that something that is going to be an issue 
uh, when people start to think about doing trials to look at, you know, whether medical marijuana can actually help cancer patients. Well, I know that there are four companies in Connecticut, at least, that have been um, accepted to be providers of the drug, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, And so there is hope that there will be clinical trials on some of these that will be in a standardized form, in the form of a medicine, so that you can generalize that, you know, this pill or this oil works in a specific way as opposed to, um, you know, leaves of the cannabis plant that um, may vary from leaf to leaf. So even more generally, I guess, you know, when you think about some of the the more psychological interventions that you have, the counseling, the uh, behavioral (laughs) modifications and so on, have there been studies that have really looked at different techniques of, of doing that, different techniques of counseling patients, whether spending so much time with a patient and their family, um, kind of listening to their concerns and and uh, so on, makes a difference? Um, there have been some ongoing studies for that, but um, not enough really to make any generalizable um, uh Conclusions. Conclusions, I guess, is the word. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think is uh, interesting is a a study that uh, is currently ongoing uh, at the Breast Center, in fact, at Yale, uh, where uh, we're using palliative care techniques uh, with our School of Nursing to uh, help with symptom management. So in our last 30 seconds, Andrew, if you were to give uh, our audience uh, one final thought with regards to palliative care... What would that be? Um, I would say if palliative care clinicians can be very helpful to people with severe illness, we get called in at all times of a disease, not just at the end. So please don't be worried if one of us walks into your room. It's because your oncologist has realized that there are ways that we can help, and they're trying to get us involved often much earlier than we used to be. So please don't look at me as having a black hood on. Dr. Andrew Putnam is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, helping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.